hi everyone welcome to perspectives i'm martina and we have my lovely co-host lisette and as you all know we have started to do a um healthcare racism in america series um that we have kicked off and we have a lovely guest here dr jairo mejia uh, who is a physician that we have the pleasure of knowing um through our past work and you know he generously decided to come on and talk a little bit about himself and about his career which has been pretty i i think dynamic he's a he's originally a physician uh from colombia who has since transferred here to the states and uh so we're turning it over to him and just a little bit to kind of go into his backstory but Lisette, feel free jump in anything you want to add as well yeah, no, you know, thank you everyone for, for kind of tuning in to this uh, episode and in, in this series uh, about healthcare in America and sort of the state of it. Uh, I'm excited to just kind of hear from Dr. Mejia uh, and, and his sort of his perspective of, of healthcare and, and coming from Colombia and then here in the United States and then getting into a conversation of what you have seen in, in sort of your journey uh, even just thinking about the difference between healthcare and, you know, in your home country versus healthcare here in the United States and what that looks like. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think this is going to be a, a great conversation is, is you all who have been listening to us know we try to keep it as a conversation, uh, and, and kind of learning from it. But this first part with Dr. Mejia will really kind of look at what, you know, your journey, Dr. Mejia, and, and your sort of where you're at. And, and then we're kind of dig into the, the deeper kind of connotations of this topic of healthcare. Uh, and the impact of, of biases and racism, uh, particularly in the United States. Uh, so Dr. Mejia, uh, I think we'll turn it over to you just to kind of introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your journey as a physician coming, you know, in Colombia, like what was the education there? Like what was, how was healthcare there? And then the, was there a culture shock when you came to the United States? What did that look like when you were here? So I'm just, you know, just gonna give you the, the platform and we can start our, our conversation. Thank you so much. First of all, thank you for inviting me over. I'm, I'm so excited. You know, it's one of these things that, you know, you know you have a story to tell, right? And sometimes you don't feel like having a, a scenario to, to share the story, right? Mm. My, my story is the story of thousands of, you know, physicians and any other professions. I'm, I'm going to speak about physicians from all over the world, right? who came here for, for different reasons, right? Different reasons that we can elaborate later on. But yeah, when I go back and see myself in 2002, I asked myself, what, what, I, I was, what was my thinking process, you know? I don't know if I was in my whole sanity. <laughs> my, my story is it's absolutely, you know, where it, it can be called crazy, right? Crazy, but happy happy and happy to share with you and with everybody who's listening to this podcast um so from colombia the, in colombia i mean there are so many areas maybe you remember Bogota, Medellin. i mean the from the south of colombia so probably you have heard about cali colombia yeah that's a, that's a city in the south well i lived in cali but originally i'm from the south of cali it's, it's a called it's a city called pasto pasto colombia so I lived over there for 15 years, moved to Cali, and then went uh, in the middle of the two cities is Popayam. So this is an area where I went to med school, met my sweetheart, got married, did my internal medicine residency over there. Mm 
um, quickly became, you know, uh, very embedded in the medical field, working in different scenarios. I've done everything, right? I've done intensive care unit, I've, I've done inpatient, outpatient, private practice, administration, like all kinds of things, you know? Wow. So that was my life. So I was a happy provider in Colombia, seeing my patients, really, really happy. Then two boys came to the family, right? Mm -hmm. um, that changed the perspective. Okay. But about 19, the 90s, right? The 90s. Yeah. So 1998, things started to, you know, complicate a little bit in Colombia. Mm. Then we took two sons, you know, and let me take, put this really straight. We have a very established, you know, life with, you know, good jobs, our practices. My wife is also a physician, she's a pathologist, I'm an internist. We were doing well, we were happy. We mm -hmm. were at university turner, we, we were fine. However, there was one, one, one piece of the puzzle that we were missing, safety, safety for our families. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was an, you know, I remember, you know, the whole process of making the decision, what are we gonna do, right? Yeah. Um, and looking for opportunity safety. Not even know, knowing how was gonna be life here. Just, mm -hmm. just to start, right now, I, I didn't speak English at all. So for me, it was starting from scratch. I, I could read English, right? right? But listening, nothing. And I was sent away to hold a conversation. So 20 years later, right? It's gonna be 20 years this June, uh, you know, it, now I realize that I've lived more in, in the United States professionally than in Colombia. I've been, mm -hmm. I've been practicing for 16 years in Colombia, here, plus three of residency is 19. I've practiced in Colombia only 10 years. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, so it's, it's more life in this side than yeah. there. No, so this is more or less. So I came here, I had to do my residency again. It's the law, you have to do train again. I train in a hospital uh, in Chicago, Mount Sinai Hospital, uh, hospital with, you know, a lot of challenges. And, you know, that, you know, really, I consider my, my residency a turning point, huge blessing in my career. Okay. Because I, I landed to the, you know, the health system that really, really represented my, my interest, right? Uh, before I came here, I started working in community health in Colombia in underserved populations because I found them more rewarding. Um, so training over there was the segue to work then in the company that I work now uh, in the admin side and also seeing patients, I still see patients once a week. So that's like in two minutes, you know, bio. <laughs> that's my bio in two minutes. <laughs> so tell me, when you emigrate at age of 40, you're kind of crazy, right? I was 40. You did I, it though, yeah. you did it. I, I was 40. I was barely speaking English. I, you know, the, my, my co-residents could perfectly be my sons. So it, it was an amazing, amazing adventure. An yeah. amazing adventure, right? Yeah. But I don't regret one single second, right? I think, I think Dr. Mejia, you, you've kind of shared a lot of what I think the immigrant story is. For, for people and migrant story is of like there was something that was happening in their home country 
right that force them to to move and and you know for a lot of a lot of time it is that safety thing so when you share that i think that that resonates across i think any any sort of profession or anything because i think we all you know people understand that especially those like for me who i'm a first generation here and, and hearing my parents story and mm -hmm. they've lived here now longer than they've lived in in mexico you know and they're like you know and they're like i couldn't go i can't go back living there you know and then doing that and you know and, and seeing that so i think hearing your story just kind of resonated like so much with me because it's like it's it's the story that i hear a lot from people who who make a decision who are like I don't even know how I did it. I came here, so got a job, but you know, here I am 20, 30, 40 years later. And you know, my kids have grown up here and all these things. So just kind of hearing your story is, is sort of just amazing. I mean, I don't think it's crazy. I think it's such a story that, that know, resonates. I'm, I'm passionate about, story, yeah. yeah. I, I'm passionate about, you know, histories of, you know, immigrants, right? Mm -hmm. from movies right i love really reading or you know watching movies about immigration of all kinds right um you know if you try to define an, an immigrant right first of all it's an adventure right it's you know it's a person who was able to give up everything we mm -hmm. we technically left in the past in one day 10 years of work you know experience position everything we, we left everything over there right um but, you know, it's when the motivation is, is really high, right? I know many people, for, we have a lot of colleagues that, you know, immigrate because of different needs and opportunities, right? Uh, in some countries, finding even a job for a physician is not easy. Mm -hmm. That was not our case, you know, we, we, we were very well over there and we decided that this, you know, and this is what I, you know, I consider is, is this, I don't know how to call it, it's, it's, I don't know if it's braveness or the irresponsibility. I don't know. <laughs> Leaving everything behind, taking your family and coming to a hair with a couple, you know, bags and start from scratch from zero, you know, and go, get, going to get your driving license and your social security number is, mm -hmm. is like starting your life from scratch again. And I was 40. So, but anyway, uh, it's, a, it's a great, great journey that I'm, I'm proud of that, right? And, you know, my, my family, we are so grateful because we found really a nation of that embraced us, right? Mm -hmm. um, kids, obviously, they were eight and 10, they quickly, right? Embraced the language and the culture. Um, but, you know, confronting this, not confronting, but reconciliating these values, right? From being Latinx and immigrant and, you know, embracing this culture. And I still remember that conversation with my wife in the you know, American Airlines flight. And I, I said, okay, we're gonna start a new life here. And we made a decision that day during the flight, you know, number one, that we were going to embrace the culture, right? We are gonna learn okay. holidays. What exactly is Thanksgiving? You know, we don't have that, right? Yeah. The, 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 from food to culture to language, right? The law, you know, is there are so many things that are different, right? Mm -hmm. So that was our decision. I remember clearly that conversation with my wife, and it was a great experience. Quite frankly, yeah, it was tough. You know? It was really hard, but we made it. Yeah, we made it. So I'm here, ha happy, you know, discussing and sharing that with you. That make, makes me feel really happy. Do you know, Doctor Mejia? Just so when you first got here with your family and probably just a few bags. How long did it take you, as you said, you really, you really wanted to immerse yourself in the culture here. 
how long did it take you to really get your bearings? Yeah, I, I can tell you, um, I'm adaptable by definition all my life. You know, I, I can adapt quickly. However, it was, it was really difficult, especially the language, you know? When you're young, you can learn the language so easy. Actually, people, experts say that you don't learn. You incorporate the other language in your, in your communication skills. But when you're 40, it's a different, different situation. And I remember being a resident at Mount Sinai and having, you know, my first rotation was intensive care unit. So go figure, me trying to understand the family members and everyone, asking for support from my friends and the interpretation services in a really busy and stressful environment. It was not easy, especially the three first, you know, first three months. Those first three months were so difficult. So the six months landmark, and now I, you know, kind of got it, right? Okay. And then it's, you know, it's history, right? And then I, I got it. So I, I was able to, and every day I continue learning, right? I continue learning every day because you will never be as proficient in the second language as you are in your native language. Um, absolutely. Because after 20 years, right, I still know how many errors I do when I speak, when I write, right? Even a simple email, right? Because it's, it's not your language, right? That's a reality. You can live here forever. And, you know, initially I was so embarrassed about my accent. And then it was a process of assimilating this and now I take ownership. Mm. I'm proud of my accent, right? I'm so proud of my accent. I love it, right? I'm not fighting my accent. I love, I like it, right? So as, as, as long as Martina and Liz can understand what I'm saying, <laughs> that's good, right? That's good. My accent means that I speak two languages, which is good. Yes, <laughs> yes. That's exactly what that is. I think you bring up such a, a good point because I think a lot of people feel embarrassed or shame of having an accent I, I remember recently a few months ago I was a, uh, I was part of a panel and someone was asking a question and they apologized because they had a heavy accent when they were speaking English and, and someone told them like don't apologize you are working hard to learn a second language that a lot of people would never try you know, especially in this country, a lot of people would never try to learn a second language and, and, and do that. And I was like, and you just reminded me of that because it's such, it's so powerful to say that you embrace it, you take pride in it. Because, you know, in, in a country where sometimes that's frowned upon and that's seen as something not to be proud of, I think it, it's so great to hear you say that uh, and for others to be able to like say like, yeah, you know, this means that I've I've done something. I've worked hard on learning a sec second language. Someone who navigates two languages and finds it hard to talk either one of them sometimes. <laughs> like, I'm like, especially when, when so you put is... me in a stressful situation in Spanish. <laughs> so let me tell you what, what is funny, a uh, personal anecdote. So a couple of years ago, just at the beginning of the pandemic, I read something that when you learn a second language, it's easier to get the, to, to, to learn a third one. Oh. So yeah, I didn't know that concept, right? So anyway, I, I you know, we did have a discussion. So, okay, let's, I mean, I mean, the pandemic, right? You're not commuting too much. You have a little bit more, you know, time to do different things. So we decided to give it a try. And we are learning Italian. And um, yeah. oh my goodness, uh, only for fun. I don't even have friends to talk in Italian, but it's just for fun because we like it. 
and yes. it's, it's kind of some similarities with Spanish. Yes. So now we've been doing Italian and yeah, it's easier, of course. And it's exciting. It's exciting, right? It's but you got to tell it. You got to mention oh your Italian. God. You got to <laughs> You mentioned Italian. I actually uh, accidentally minored in Italian while I was Did you? Wow. bene, molto bene. And I, I did it because I wanted, I, 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 was, I said I was going to do a year of a foreign language in college, wow. and then I just stuck the three years that it took to get a, the, the minor. But so when you said it, I was like, oh, maybe <laughs> one time, maybe we can practice because I know I've forgotten it, but it, it was easier. It was easier when I was immersed in it and, and talking. It was just so easy to just have a conversation with my professors. There's a lot of similarities with Spanish, which sometimes I would mess it up and my professor would be nice enough to be like, okay, you're kind of talking Spanish, Italian there. It's not. Hey, let's, let's challenge ourselves. Let's do a podcast in Italian in 10 years. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I'll let y'all two talk and I'll just. Martina, you got 10 years. Got 10 years. I don't know. Uh, you know, y'all over here, it's just so interesting to hear about both of you being to me i believe is very well spoken in both in both of your languages whether it's your home language or the language that you've learned here and then like learning a third language here i'm like we have people in the united states that can't we can't get english like they just can't they can't get english right and it's just thing because i mean i spent i mean i will say i spent my time in college i did french i just that's what I gravitated towards and it's just like well i remember i remember alicette and i talking about it about about the Italian. And I think you had to tell me again, because I was like, Lisette, didn't you take Italian? And then we started talking and you were like, there are so many similarities between the Italian language and the Spanish language. So it's just a coincidence that both of you had speak a little bit Italian. I guess so. I have I have 10 years. I'll see yeah, what I can do. I think we years. took a shortcut because French is so difficult, right? It is Forget about German. Is. So I think we took a shortcut at least, but it's good. Yeah. It's good. Is it, I, you know, I did French in high school and I did not do well with French. Oh, no. Not in high school. It, did not, it was not the language yes. for me. Yes, it was. Yes, it's not an English language, but none of it is. But yeah, it definitely is. And I was immersed in it because I really, I wanted to make French my minor as well. But I had to take, I had taken all of our, as the, as the language series was, but I had to take more like French French literature and French culture and it just wasn't working out with my schedule but I did really want to minor in it but literally by the time I got I think it was French four or French five the entire class you're just speaking French and it really did help because everybody was speaking the language and even if you messed up you know it was it was no criticism because it's just everybody's there to learn um which I thought was a really a really beautiful thing and just this this conversation around exchanging languages is just great I love it so good. But uh, Dr. you're talking about sort of your, your sort of starting off, you know, your residency here in the United States and, and kind of doing that. Like, can you give us a glimpse of what, you know, the difference was as you were learning, you know, the healthcare system in the United States to what you knew and how you practiced in Colombia? Like, are there differences? Like, are there big differences? Are there similarities or just this different way of treating patients like do you approach even treatment differently like you know how did how how was that as sort of the the transition from what what you 
are used to practicing in, in you know in Colombia versus how you had to either adapt or accommodate or adopt here in the United States. We, we I mean let me let me just start by saying you know in both our environments you you can find everything right from mm -hmm. the highest highest healthcare with all the technology and the science behind it through the knocker at all, right? So you can find both in, in, in the two environments, in an undeveloped country and in the United States. But I really wanna share with you what I call my professional aha moment, right? Yeah. So this happened about probably September, October of 20, 2002. So when you start the residency, you start doing your rotations, your inpatient, right? So I started ICU, then I did, I did some floors, um, by the third month or second or third month, we started doing what, what is called the clinics, which is the outpatient experience. So you will be sent to a health center, a clinic, and you will be paired with a preceptor, right? Who's gonna be your attending. And usually you do one or two clinics uh, per week. Now, in my case, I did, uh, because I was in a special called primary care track, I did two clinics per week. It was two afternoons where I go from one to six to see patients. So this is what happened. So I went to see my patients for the first time. I knew the clinic that I was going was heavy on Spanish-speaking people. And, and the reason, because obviously they know that I speak Spanish, so they assigned me to this clinic with a lot of Latin, Latino population. So I, I remember going there, met my preceptor, um so he said, I know you have experience. I said, yeah, I've been, I've been working for 10 years as an internist. So he said, well, go ahead and see patients. I mean, yeah, because this is nothing really. I mean, it, for me, it was natural, not completely natural, because this is what I've been doing for 10 years, right? Seeing patients. So anyway, I went and started seeing patients. And that's, that's the moment when I found the sad reality that I never imagined, you know? That's when I saw the inequity, mm -hmm. the poverty, the lack of care. So we're talking about 2002, no affordable care act, no Medicaid expansion. Every adult that I saw in that clinic had no insurance. So here I am, you know, seeing a group of people with, you know, so many challenges, right? Like every other patient is was and is a diabetic. It's a community. It's a community in, in, in Chicago, mm. extremely affected by you know diabetes and social uh, situations. So I remember when I finished that day after seeing I don't know how many patients, I was so moved and touched, and I think I, I can't even believe that I emigrated to the United States of America to see in this situation, I, I couldn't imagine. And you know, we're not talking about rural America. Right. That, that health center is literally a 10 minutes drive to downtown, yeah. to the Gold Coast. I was in disbelief. I was completely in disbelief. That was, that was like, you know, practicing in a, in a, in a very uh, depressed area of Mexico, I imagine, I, you know, I, I suppose it's, it's or in Colombia or in Venezuela. I don't know. Every yeah. that area is particularly challenged, right? So I remember before I left the the, health, the clinic that day, 
telling them the, the, my perceptor, I said, I want to work here. This is what I want to do when I finish my residency. He laughed and he said, yeah, yeah, we'll see. He said, yeah, I want to work here. So and he, I was completely decided to work over there, right? Yeah. So it's interesting because as I built my, my connections with the patients, I, I really felt passionate and, and I fell in love with this practice. So by the time I finished, I already have a full practice built. And it was very interesting because I, I finished my residency in 2005, it's three years. And I finished, I remember it was like a Thursday. By Monday, I was already working over there. Right. which is not typical today. You'd never start working as a physician in, in one day or two. It takes right. three months at least, right? For credit. That, those, those were different times. Yeah. I didn't take any time off. I just start to work immediately. You know, I have a family to sustain. So, but anyway, um, that was my aha moment. That afternoon in that health center in Chicago, inner city, where I found, you know, that, you know, what is picture about the United States outside is so far away of the reality, so far away. And then I was grateful because of my age, I guess, right? I only had the opportunity to do three interviews for, for residency, mm -hmm. only three. One was in, in Ohio, it was in Cincinnati, and it was a community mainly from Russian immigrants. And then I did two interviews in Chicago. I did the one in Mount Sinai, the other one was with a private hospital. Again, decision points, turning points, right? Mm -hmm. All of them offered me the same. And I decided to take this one. Um, oh my goodness, I never regret it. You know, what if I choose the other one? I will be completely boring practicing in a private practice. <laughs> so I'm, <laughs> I'm so happy to be to, to have chosen this, this, you know, this pathway for my for my career. I'm always so inspired to hear the stories of people who are in in the health in the health profession, such as physicians and nurses, in their stories, like you just said, like you know, you could have went to two other different hospitals, but you chose to stay at, at Sinai. And so, you know, you know, I know you still work kind of in that in the same area. And so, Dr. Mejia, since when you started to where you are now, would you say? You have seen some improvements or is it about the same? What are your thoughts about that? Huge improvement, huge improvement. A game changer, a game changer was the American, uh, afford the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act changed everything, right? It, it, was, the, it was a huge step to, to fight uh, health inequity. Mm -hmm. I, I remember one, one day my preceptor called me, you know, I just recently started working in the company and he called me and said, you know, I just want to be clear with you, Jairo, um, we are not really important in this organization. I said, why? He said, because you and I are internists. Family doctors are important. We are not. And the reason is because, you know, the only people, the only group that has access to Medicaid, the only group is really... Um, the pediatric population. At that time, it was only pediatrics. Every, you, you, you become 18 out of Medicaid. So this population had no coverage at all, right? Not to mention that between 20 to 30% were people not even eligible for Medicaid, regardless, because they were undocumented. 
So the, the Affordable Care Act, you know, when you can really acquire insurance, you know, and, and being, you know, kind of a sponsor and, you know, and the Medicaid expansion that Illinois went for, we saw a huge, immense change, right? Because that gave access to millions, millions. And I can tell you, I remember at that time, uh, you know, after the implementation, we started seeing a lot of patients, and this is this is difficult to believe, right? People in the 40s, 50s, whom, you know, last visit with a doctor was the last pediatric checkup. Never a, never a checkup, never a physical, never a screening test, nothing, never a mom, never nothing. The last medical visit was the last pediatric visit. Wow. Years or decades ago. That was so common. No insurance, no care, no prevention, nothing. So the, the other big portion was medications, right? So initially, I mean, there was no access. There was no access. I mean, getting medications was so expensive, right? Then we have, God bless the Harrion, they have the $4 programs for many companies. They, they brought the $4 program for medications. That was a change, immense change, because there were a huge amount of medications that you, you can purchase for $4 a month. And then after that, you know, it came the, the, the 340 program that at that time was really, really um, still beginning, right? And today plays an important role for communities around the country with no access to insurance. Mm -hmm. 340 program is a huge program, huge support for patients for medications. Technically, I dare to say that if you don't have access to medications these days, it's because you don't know exactly where, where to go. Because you can access to technically any medication at an extremely, extremely affordable price. So that, that be, so big changes, but the inequity continues, right? The inequity continues. There are many other things, like for example, the quality of care that our people get. When talk, talk about our people, like let me be flat on this. I'm a minority, right? Uh, and I'm very proud to be a minority in this country. Mm -hmm. So we minorities get lower quality of care. If I have a heart attack and I go to the hospital, my treatment studies show could be under, you know, quality standards that, you know, for minorities. That's, that's, that's really sad to say, but it's the reality. If I can't, if I have cancer, chances are that I'm not offered everything that is available. That's a reality. And studies show that, right? So we had still a lot of inequities, a lot happening. Oh my gosh. I, hearing you talk, I can hear it now, but like just uh, one of the things that stood out to me was when you're talking about when the Affordable Care Act came into place and people had access and you start seeing people in their 40s and 50s who had gone so long without medical care or just regular checkups like your yearly checkup that you know you're encouraged to get and they they hadn't done that like you know and the affordable care was just you know not that long ago like you, you it's not something that is you know been in place for for a long time and to to hear that that was that that happened and to and to know that for so long people have suffered have gone without care and you know just because there isn't this idea that healthcare is a right, and, you know, in this country, like there, there's that thought process. And, you know, that just struck me because I'm like, I can't imagine 
being, you know, being in pain or knowing that something's wrong and you just kind of either stick with it and try like a home remedy or something and you just, you know, and, and, and not go because you can't afford it. I mean, it is expensive. It's expensive to get care, like no insurance. It's, I don't wish it on anybody because that will drown you in debt. And you absolutely putting, putting your feet in the ER as a patient. Yeah. Starts with ten thousand dollars, five to ten thousand dollars minimal. I just putting your feet yeah. in the registration. You're there, it's like that. But there, are, there are components that we need to remember. I mean, and it's important to remember this, right? Pre-existence, right? Mm -hmm. I remember many patients were denied, and they came to me and said, "I asked, you know, the same questions. Do you have any insurance? Were you able to get insurance?" His date here, she said, "No, because I'm diabetic." <laughs> so. I'm not, I'm not an expert in economics, right? But if you deny insurance to a patient with diabetes, right? You deny insurance for people to get mammograms or tests for colorectal cancer, right? Yeah. That's going to be more expensive, you know, at the end. It's, I mean, like three times more expensive, right? If I have a patient who has, um, you know, a small polyp that is detected in a colonoscopy or a fecal test, and I take out this polyp, imagine, right? the cost of treating the colon cancer, right? Diagnosis, chemo, surgery, radiation, the cost of the life of the person and the quality of the suffering and pain. And if we are going to purely economics, productivity. So, I mean, it's like a very simple math for me. Preventive medicine is the best investment, right? Mm -hmm. And there were more, there were more, remember. Before the Affordable Care Act, you know, you have children, they were uninsured after they were 18. Mm. And now they have coverage until 26. 26, they have more chances to be in the market of working, right? And getting insurance. But before, you have a huge gap of these young people who also get sick, right? Mm. And no insurance, no coverage. That was tough. That was really, really tough. So again, it's, it's, it's a little bit of here and there improvements that are humanizing the situation a little bit like before. But you know what is interesting? I still listen to conversations from congressmen, groups, activists, you know, the, 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 the health industry advocating to eliminate pre-existences. How can you, how can you in your sanity can advocate, even advocate? For me, it's just a slap in the face for people, right? It's, 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 it's unbelievable to, 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 to think that those discussions are still happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, when you brought that up and you bring in sort of the, the point of view of hearing, you know, people who, who we vote in, obviously, to, to government, and, the, and they're talking about taking away something that, you know, just helps people. And, and you brought up such a good point, Dr. Mejia, of like, you know, this prevention, this idea that prevention is key and, and, and knowing and having access to that and, and sort of like, so you don't get to a point where someone is in need of drastic measures or having to go through these treatments when a lot of the diseases that we see are preventable if caught early, if done, you know, if you get your regular, you know, like I said, that, those yearly checkups and those yearly things yeah. that are supposed to happen and, you know, and, and to see that and even to hear the idea of like pre-existing conditions at the time that we're living in, right, we know that COVID 
is going to lead to a lot of people having some sort of pre-existing condition that they didn't have before because you know and all these things and and you hear it and you kind of have these conversations of inequities in healthcare and you know what do people do like and and you like me I think about like I think more of like my parents who are older and, and, and depend on like a medicare and you know and, so, and then it's sort of like even that is limited like that's you're paying for it and you, so you many limitations it's, it's so hard to get care like you know I'll, I'll share a little bit my dad recently he fell and we, he, we had go through this whole rehab he's still rehabbing but just to go through the system to get him the care that he needed because he was underinsured I was like how how is this America like how is this the great country that is supposed to be like the best in the world and and I'm over here struggling to get my dad just basic care and, and just for someone to humanize him, to humanize the healthcare system. It, it was so difficult to kind of see that because they see it as a business and not as a person. Yes. Not as humans. Right. Not to mention, you know, I think this is number one reason for one Robsy or one of the top five for yeah. one Robsy. Yeah. You can lose your home. You can lose your home if you have a serious condition and no insurance coverage. But if you want to take me to COVID, grab a coffee because we can be here for five hours. Really want to go there? Oh my goodness! <laughs> that was that was that was moving the curtain and getting us exposed to the most mm. miserable unacceptable social injustice. I mean, it's like, really? What, you know, and not only here, uh, you know, worldwide, you know, mm-hmm. COVID really took out the mask, you know? We were living in a, in a technically in a lie, really. Mm-hmm. When, when you see what's happening with COVID, you know, yeah. it's, it's really, it's really sad. And we, we need to really learn from this, you know? And I hope we will learn something, you know, from this pandemic. I'm still surprised, you know, Dr. Mejia, like you said about COVID, I can probably talk for hours about that too, because it just, the thing that this is something that had to happen for people to really get a better understanding of all the inequities that exist in healthcare, and still people really don't get the picture. Because similar to what Elisette is saying, I've had a similar experience with my father, who's also, he's on Medicare and on Medicaid, and he just tried to go to a doctor's appointment the other day. And because he didn't even have his card, he couldn't he couldn't even take his appointment, which he needed. So he had to end up rescheduling because he had to get his card in the mail. But it, to me, it's just saying that these these inequities that have been here, it's just COVID just continues to exacerbate the issues, especially in the communities that we serve. And I'm just wondering your thoughts, probably not the five-hour version, but your thoughts around. Where do you kind of see COVID taking the communities that we serve? Or how it's, I mean, even though it's, it is impacting, but how do you see this kind of playing out in a way as we continue in this pandemic? Because it seems like every other week, there's a new variant. And there's still people who are not vaccinated, who just won't get vaccinated. Um, and some of those people are within the communities that we, that we serve again. You know, you know, Martina, you, you can take pictures of this situation from 50 different angles, right? Mm-hmm. 
from any angle that you take the picture, you know, there are so many components of, you know, inequity. So first of all, there's history, right? Um, the numbers, right? The numbers are staggering, right? When, when you see who put the, the deaths, right? Who, who put the people really? Who? The minorities, right? Mm -hmm. Minorities for unnumbered reasons. I mean, like so many conditions, right? Uh, let's start for, for the jobs that we have, for the living conditions, for overcrowding, overcrowded living conditions, from the type of jobs that is almost impossible for people to get, you know, a social distance and continue. And it goes and goes and goes, right? You know, it's it, when you say impact, and it's let, let me tell you, in, in our organization, we, we have a series of metrics and we have been monitoring the pandemic since the beginning, right? So, we every week we gather all the information, we make a plan how to handle the response to the pandemic. And one of the, the, the things that are for me really sad is, you know, when you see the positivity rates, the death rate, you know, you have the data from Chicago and you have the data from our organization. It's completely different. Mm -hmm. Like for example, last couple of weeks, when, when Chicago went to 17% positivity, we were in 24. Wow. Wow. Exactly. Let's talk about vaccines, you know, um, vaccination, you know, access to vaccines, you know, especially when supplies were, were scanty, right? So the, the, the inequity was there, right? Um, and the target for the education and, and the, uh, you know, be people being able to see a provider or, or have, uh, get access to care, you know, was limited, you know? So this, this really unveiled, you know, a really, really bad situation. And it continues to do every day. The social determinants of health, transportation, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, most of our people really, uh, when I talk about minorities, I mean, the, the, the percentage of people with education, like can work, you know, from home is small, right? If you are working in a restaurant, if you're working in, in services of any kind, you can isolate, it's so difficult to isolate, right? Do you have the resources to buy a good mask, you know? So you see people using bandanas that are useless, right? Or using masks made out of, you know, clothes that the CDC say they don't work really. But can people really buy N95s, right? Now it's coming, but you know, it's been two years later, right? Exactly. Our people don't have access to those, to those things. So again, that's why I said the pandemic was really, uh, you know, show, you know, the reality that we live, that the realities and the inequities, unfortunately. Yeah. Just hearing that 20, you said 20, 24%, and that, yeah. that is really shocking. I'm I, surprised, but not surprised. Yeah. But that is a drastically different. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, the vaccine hesitance, you know, and again, there's a lot of history here, right? When in the past decades ago, you know, uh, minorities were affected by misuse of vaccines or inappropriate selection of for, for many things from studies, from all kinds of things, right? Uh, so there's this history component, there's the education component, there's the language, language barrier, right? Are we getting the message to the people about the vaccines, right? 
why are we getting the, the, the battle against, you know, fake news and Facebook and, you know, all these things that are happening? I can tell you, 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 you can be amazed of the things that circulate in media. This is what our communities are getting first, right? In other countries, there is a platform that is very popular. It's not here, but it's the one that everybody uses in other countries. It's called, it's called WhatsApp or something. Like that. I mean, does you, I mean, I can't tell you the things that you can see over there. And they are in, you know, their languages. So people just receive this and take it, right? Take it. We failed to communicate adequately to our population. We failed. You bring up such a good point about platforms, like, especially I think in the Latino community, because my mom over the last few years has gotten into like the social media realm and she's older. And I'm like, and she's sometimes she'll like share things with me on, that she saw on Facebook or they have WhatsApp as well, because that's how she communicates with family in Mexico uh, and stuff. And, and she's like, oh, you know, this came through and, you know, and I hear people like sharing things and I'm like, that's not true though. Like, that's not real. Like that's, you know, and, and there's this, this sharing of information as that is like, like, oh no, these are the facts. This is the truth. Um, and when you say like, you know, we have failed to kind of earn the trust, like, you know, the, the United States government has failed its people uh, because of, you know, the things that they've done in the past and not reconciling, you know, reconciling that and, and, and taking ownership of what was done to people in the name of health and healthcare, um, and, and in doing so. And I think that's such a, an important thing to bring up and to, you know, to really say like there is this mistrust. And a lot of times I hear people uh, in sort of the professional circles that we're in say like, you know, people just need to like get over it or need to just, you know, move forward with it. And, you know, like, yeah, that's just, you know, in the past. And I was like, it's in the past for who? <laughs> because for some of us, we're still living it or still being impacted because it doesn't matter how far in society, maybe the three of us get to our, the way that we look, the way that we talk, our, our names, will always put us into a bucket, into a box. And we can't outrun that. Like we can't outrun it. And I think a lot of, you know, there, there wasn't that acknowledge, especially early on with the vaccines, you know, people are like, oh, you know, why aren't our black communities getting the vaccine? And, and people are like, this is why. And, you know, the mainstream media was like, well, that can't be it. Like that happened years ago. Like that's, that's not even relevant. And it's like, have you seen what's happened in the black community just within the last two, three years? Like it's yeah. still happening. It's still exactly. You know, and it's, and it's, it's unfortunate that even, you know, when you think about the Latino community and sort of the, the mistrust that the last administration has, you know, done and, and the hurt that, that was done and just the, the, the way that the Latino community has been sort of just bombarded into this whole monolith of things and, and you know and, and sort of having that that and trying to rectify it during a pandemic and trying to like why aren't these black and brown communities doing what they're supposed to do is like we can't like you touched on the, the the work that we a lot of our you know friends and families do that doesn't afford them the, the possibility to work from home they had a, a lot of people had to work through the worst of the pandemic 
you know, and being exposed to it and bringing it into your multi-generational homes, like that to me was just to not have a government that cared about people's health to say, hey, we're going to take care of our people for like a year or six months to say, let's get this under control. Like that to me was like just it was maddening. Like I know Martine and I talked about early in the, in, in the beginning of the pandemic, like how how upsetting it was that the government couldn't take care of us. Like they didn't, they just showed complete disregard and care about our health, our health, our healthcare systems, and just like a safety net that was supposed to be there that wasn't. And as we've said, like this is supposed to be, people think this is probably the most advanced country in the world. I don't think I'm of that belief, but this, this country is supposed to be one of the most advanced countries. And this is where we are, where people, everyone can't even get health care. And if they can't get health care, it's not, it's not equitable. And we have people who are just trying to like wrap their head around, why is it so difficult? Like, why don't they want to do this, that, and another? And if people say, oh, well, this happened so long ago. No, this is happening right now. It's right. happening in the communities. Um, you may not see this in your community, but there are people living this life every day. And sometimes those people really don't see a way out. And I think more of this has come to light since, since 2020, because 2020 was just an explosive year. Just a lot happened. But as we all are collectively saying, there's still so much work to be done. And I think that's what a lot of like politicians and as you mentioned, Dr. Mahir, activists and different individuals, either they are just choosing to outright ignoring the issue because of capitalism and money, or it's, you know, what is it? you know, in this country. And it's just, it really is. And it's, it's sad, you know, this is a country that I was born and raised in. I was born in the South. I was born and raised in Mississippi. And so having moved from Mississippi to Chicago was a complete experience for me in itself. But when I moved here, I did have these notions in my head that Chicago in many ways was going to be different than what I saw in the South. And in many ways, it's not. It's a lot of similarities between the South and even just the just Northern in terms of many things. But it's just, it's just like, I just had to touch on that because it's just really just listening to what we're talking about. And it's just, you know, how are we going to get out of this? You know, what's right. the way out? I don't, I don't know. And like we said, if we, I mean, we can talk about COVID. Yeah. <laughs> we have, we have, yeah. we have talked about COVID in and out and roundabout. And it's just, I don't know. And it's just, we're going into, our third year with this, right? With COVID, this is kick off in 2020 and we're now in 2022 and- March 18, I think it was in 2020. But you know what, Martina, that, now that you mentioned this, you know, when I think about inequities and health and, you know, racism, it's, it's not about just having a, an insurance card. It's not, it's not enough. And, you know, even if you have Medicaid or good uh, HMO or PPO, it's not enough. What about, you know, how about the social determinants of health? right? That's another huge hot potato, right? Yeah. Is, you know, is where you live will determine your health, right? Yeah. That's the plain reality, right? From air quality, water quality, right? From, from available of fresh food, right? So there are things that I always mention and in every scenario that I can, I, I have always mentioned two things, you know? One is that for many areas of Chicago, if you want to buy fresh food you will, and you have a car, you will need to take two buses to. At least. 
as this to go to a fresh market. For me, that's, I mean, just, no, that's absolutely unacceptable. That the second one, and this is another thing that happened to me. So I was, I was doing in, in my, my job, I, I do rounds and visit different areas of the city and health centers. And I remember years ago, I was driving to a very, very, you know, let's say area with a lot of challenges in the extreme south, close to Indiana. And I remember, you know, you're in the neighborhood, but suddenly I was driving when I saw a beautiful building, right? And, and I remember saying, this is, this is so beautiful for this community, right? This is, I mean, what is this? Is this a health center, a community health center, a, a community center, a, is a school? Is a senior services center? It was a dialysis center. A dialysis center. So it's not only, we don't care about your kidneys, you know, but we care about when you get on dialysis, we want to be with you over there and make sure you have your dialysis available. Now, tell me if that, that is not absolutely horrible, right? So there is no really private investment in improving the living conditions. It's, it's about, you know, a patient with Medicare, Medicare will pay for dialysis regardless where you are, right? So let's put dialysis units. And that's just one example of the social investment. Why this, in my opinion, social contract is failing to the people, right? Because you, you don't have transportation, you don't have fresh food. You don't, how many, how many drugstores have been, have been closed in the city of Chicago? Closed. And the, the big change is, I mean, really is business, right? It's business. How many hospitals in Chicago have closed, right? At least two big hospitals closed in the last two years. And those are not exactly located in downtown. They're located where, you know, the yeah. communities need them the most. Yeah. So again, it's, it's that concept of, you know, everything is related to, you know, revenue. Um, and that's really sad because people are paying, you know, with, with suffering and, shorter lives and you know life expectancy is lower you know the death gap in chicago you know well you know and for people who will listen this in the future you know the death gap in chicago is if you live in the front of the lake right mm -hmm. you will have 30 years longer life expectancy than if, if you live in the west of chicago just 15 minutes drive take a 15 minutes drive west or south and your life expectancy decreases 30 years. Well, if you're 80, you're only expected to live until you're 50 on the, in some of these communities. Exactly. Exactly. Maybe. And this is, it's not only about chronic, chronic conditions, high diabetes, hypertension, it's about violence too. Yes. Violence. So another critical point, social conditions, social determinants of health. And that's the reality. You, you, you brought up a point that reminded me of when we ended up having to take my dad to the ER, you know, back in December. And I won't say the hospital we were in, it's the one that's closest to us, but I remember going in and sitting down there and realizing that this place felt like people were coming to die. Like the, this hospital, I was like, it hasn't been invested in, it hasn't 
it, it doesn't feel like a place where you're going to get healed or t- like it just even walking in just just everything about it and I was I remember I talked to Martina and I was like this is terrible the fact that in the community I live the closest hospital to me feels like a place to go to die versus a place where I'm going to get care and 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 just because of how it looks and and just and it it was one of those things where I hadn't been there in in, in years uh because of the reputation it has and, and just as a community resident knowing that but I'm like no I'm like this is terrible that we can invest in our communities where it's needed that the investments aren't there and and it made me look at my community differently like now when I drive around or I'm walking around I I I no longer see the nice things because I used to just see like how beautiful like I was like I live by a park and now I see everything that hasn't been invested in that has look the same for the I mean I've been living here since I was five years old so like 30 years and I'm like and a lot of the things look the same that they did 10 20 years ago because nobody has invested in it things have closed down and it's like I no longer see like what what I thought was like beautiful and I'm like and then I'm like but where do you even start like how do you even tackle something that is so big and 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 needs more than just a band-aid but needs like actual you know systems and policy changes to make that happen is just I mean it's just incredibly like mind-boggling overwhelming but you made me think about like you know there isn't the investment that's needed whether it's from our government private sectors and even when private sectors come in and, and and invest, there's always some sort of other thing that has to happen, or there's like a plan in place that doesn't really take the community, you know, in into account sometimes. And maybe they'll say like, yeah, we have community, you know, work, workshops or hearing town halls and stuff like that. But it's never really at the benefit of the community. It's always more at the benefit of whatever institution is coming in. And it's it's sad. Like, it's sad. And I remember telling Martina about the whole hospital thing. And I was like, I don't know what I can do. Like, I don't know what place I can do to like figure out and figure out like how to make just, even if you just put a new paint and some new seating chairs or something for people to feel like they're, they're there and waiting for a family member not to like come out like that. It was just, it was a terrible experience to me. I, we ended up having to transfer my dad out of there because we knew he wasn't going to get the care that he needed. And that's unfortunate. Like I shouldn't have to have taken my dad out of there for him to get the care that he needed. But I was like, I, I, it was just to me, just, I, to this day, I just can't believe to have gone through that. You, you, you touch a good point, uh, Liz. You know, people have the right not only to have health care, but really healthcare in, in the place where they live, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, l- let me tell you, so we have some health centers in the, in the in the west, far, far west of the city and in the north side for many times for services as basic as a mammogram or to see a diabetes doctor, endocrinologist. They have to drive 20, to 5, 20 25, 30 miles to get the care. That, that's, that's not, I mean, like today, this morning, I saw one patient uh, who, you know, was working uh, cleaning snow. So he, you know, slipped in the ice, fell down and broke his hand, right? 
So I saw him this morning and he said, I need to see an orthopedic doctor. So, well, who, and he had a, he had a cast already. So who did the cast for you? He said, well, in, in, the, in the emergency, um, they did the cast for me, but they say that I need uh, a follow-up. And the problem is I don't have any insurance. And they will, they, they told me upfront, the follow-up is gonna cost you uh, $500. Mm. So here is this person, right? Mm -hmm. Who many times, those people don't even feel comfortable going to the city, going to downtown. It's intimidating for them, yeah. right? Lo looking for a safety net hospital can take them, right? And see him uh, because he doesn't have $500 for a, just a follow-up. It's just a follow-up. Just taking a look, see how he's doing, you know, and maybe on a plane x-rays. But if you don't have insurance, that's a reality. And you need to pay up front. So it's systematic. It's, it's embraced. It's, yes. it's, yeah, it's systematic, unfortunately. It's intentional. It, it's intentional. It, this yeah. is the way that, yeah, it's intentional. That's, that's really sad. And you know, I, I have to be frank. I mean, there are many organizations working on that. There are many people that really are trying to, to, mm -hmm. make, to, to make the difference and causing some impact. But you know, almost all those initiatives came from the private sector, right? I think it has to be a more decisive, you know, investment in, 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 in these conditions of healthcare uh, from the government, which is finally the ultimate, you know, owner of this is the government, right? So I, I think good initiatives are happening, but the impact is not even close to what is needed. It's, it's really a small impact, right? Compared with a huge amount of needs. Well, I think on that note, I think that's a good point to wrap up on. It's not a good point, but it's, I mean, we could keep talking, but I know we are probably at an hour at this point. Um, and so Dr. Mejia, thank you. This is a great conversation. Uh, we would love to continue. We do have some time set up with you uh, to continue this conversation. Um, so this is part one of this. Um, and there's much more that we still need to talk about. Like, again, we could, we could keep talking, but thank you again for volunteering your time. And it has uh, really been enriching for me to just hear you speak so plainly about, about the situations that are happening just here in Chicago and just, just happening across the world because I think oftentimes people wanna have the, have the rose colored glasses on and uh, it's not like that. And so, you know, with that, they said, I'll let you kind of take us on home and wrap us up. I'm, I'm, I'm going to see Dr. Mejia, I don't know if you have any final words on just yeah. what we talked about and sort of, and then I'll kind of wrap us up. But yeah, just want to give you a final chance to kind of summarize anything. Yeah, no, thank you for giving me a voice, right? Um, for your good questions, uh, for the time to talk, talk these things slowly, right? I really appreciate that. I, I don't feel myself, you know, I, I wouldn't be transparent with my professional standards, right? If I don't say the, the things that I feel and you know and, and see every day, because they are there. I mean, the, the evidence is there. It's the reality. So for me, it has been a good conversation, and I, I thank you for creating this scenario. And I know you are doing this with other you know actors and people who are embedded in the communities. I think that's that's commendable, and I really really appreciate the, the effort. Really. Um, Thank you. Thank you so much. Looking forward for another conversation. Absolutely.
Yeah, well, with, with that said, thank you again, Dr. Mejia. Uh, thank you to those that, that have listened and, and, and tuned in and or, or, or watched, because we do know this is both a podcast and, and, and a video as well. Uh, as you know, we have mentioned, we're going to come back with uh, Dr. Mejia for, for a part two to kind of continue and also finalize some of this conversation. I think we'll, we'll kind of continue digging into to COVID. We know that's still prevalent and things, but you know, I think that there's other things we can talk about, particularly with, with the immigrant and healthcare, I think is another one that we'll kind of try to dig in at the next episode with Dr. Mejia. So stay tuned. Thank you for tuning in and, and keep an eye out. If you have any questions, make sure you kind of DM us or put it in the comments below. Um, and, and we'll kind of, if you want to communicate, we'll put all of our social media links as well in the description box. So feel free to, to reach out to us with any questions um, as well. So thank you all. And we will talk to you all soon and see you soon. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.